You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we look at the impact of a judicial review of Mifeprestone, the abortion pill. Can that ruling have an influence on the future of pharmaceutical research and development? And what would it mean for medications currently on the market? Plus, we'll look at the softening labor market. You might think it'd be easier to hire more workers, but some companies will continue to have trouble until they start to consider how that hiring process is conducted. And as summer approaches, we'll look at the cost of a quickie getaway. Dirt cheap airfares are pretty much gone, especially in the UK and the EU. We're going to find out why. But first, we begin with the Fed, as we are seeing hints of disagreement bubbling up at the Federal Reserve of late. Policymakers are being pulled in different directions. Former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers has noticed it, and we talked with him about it on Bloomberg TV. I think we're still looking at a very hard uh to read economy. I don't see inflation as on a secure path down to the 2% uh, target unless the economy turns o- turns over uh, a bit. So I think the Fed has very difficult uh, choices ahead of it. Let's find out more now. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Levin. Jonathan has worked as a Bloomberg journalist in Latin America and the U.S. covering finance markets and M&A. And most recently, he has served as the company's Miami bureau chief. And he joins me now. Now, Jonathan, you say in your column on the Bloomberg terminal, if you think the debate seems fiery now, just wait until the third quarter. What's happening in the third quarter? Yeah, well, a lot of people think that's that's when we're potentially going to see uh, the start of a recession in the United States. And what's particularly interesting about a lot of these calls is that a lot of people are saying it's going to be a quote-unquote mild recession. So when you think about how monetary policy works uh, and sort of rules of thumb of, of monetary policy, everybody sort of knows what you're supposed to do when you have really hot inflation and a pretty strong economy. And everybody sort of knows what you're supposed to do when uh, the economy is tanking and you're in a crisis. You, you, you just cut rates to the bottom, right? But what exactly are you supposed to do when inflation is still pretty sticky and you're in a quote unquote mild recession? Uh, And the way I sort of think about it is, you know, you're going to have some pain in in the labor market, uh, but perhaps the recession just isn't so deep as to extinguish that inflation that we're talking about. That to me is a real recipe for uh, policy squabbles over at the, uh, the Federal Reserve. Now, when did we first start seeing some of the dissent within the Fed? Yeah, I think it's been uh, bubbling up more uh, over uh, the past few weeks. I think, uh, you know, there, there there's no question, uh, it, it's not a coincidence that this coincides with uh, with Austin Goolsby being a voter uh, this year. Uh, you know, he came in uh, for the Chicago Fed. He has a reputation as a dove. And I think, he, you know, he also... Uh, he feels he, he's an important and smart and influential economist, but he also seems to have this out, outsized influence because he's a very good public speaker. Uh, he, 
you know, he has this allure to him. He's, he's kind of funny, right? He tells dad jokes when he's out there uh, talking about monetary policy. And I think that makes us listen to him a little bit more. Uh, and so in recent weeks, you know, we, we had a major speech from Austin, Austin Goolsby, which uh, sort of no surprise came off as very, very dovish. There was a big focus on the risks going forward, especially after the banking uh, crises that, that we have seen uh, over the past uh, month and change. And then you sort of hold that up uh, against another speech, for instance, uh, the one given by Governor Waller, where Governor Waller says in no uncertain terms, look, there's still there's still some heat out there and uh, we've got to raise rates. He, he doesn't specifically say how much more, but but his starting point is we've got to raise and you could even go a, a little bit further i didn't i didn't talk about bullard in my column because of course he's not a, a voter this year but he is at the far other side of the spectrum and he's uh, essentially talking about we probably need to go to something like 5.75% at the top end of, of the range and bullard's rationale basically is he doesn't see the recession that everybody's talking about all right. So then would this be a manifestation of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank? You mentioned that this has sort of started a few weeks ago, and that would coincide with that event. I think a major reason why a lot of economists, including at the Fed staff, uh, started to write in a, a second half recession with a bit more certainty is because of what 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 went down at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, right? And the the thinking is that this is going to lead over the medium term to uh, tighter credit conditions going forward, but it's going to take some time uh, for it to for it to really play out. Uh, so, you know, when you think about the math of that, uh, people think that 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 credit condition tightening actually substitutes for uh for fed hikes right and there is a great degree of discrepancy uh as to the extent of that that effect right some people think it's negligible some people think it's 25 basis points some people think it could be 75 basis points so to your point amy, amy that very much goes to the uncertainty around policy right now uh you know, Bullard is saying we've got to go to 575. But if you're the type of policymaker who thinks that what happened at Silicon Valley Bank just substituted for 75 basis points of hikes, obviously you're going to be at the other end of that argument. Now, Jonathan, what's the big deal if there's a disagreement within the Fed? Why is that an issue? Why would that be something to be watching for or be concerned about? The big deal is that policy is essentially transmitted through rhetoric these days, right? Ever since ever since Bernanke came into the, the Fed, uh, you know, rhetoric and quote unquote transparency has been a big part of how the Fed manages uh, financial conditions, especially further out the curve, right? When we talk about uh, the Fed funds rate, that's really just policymakers controlling the short rate. But uh, as we learned in the great financial crisis, uh, you can't wield a lot of influence unless you're also controlling uh, those longer rates, especially like the 10-year, which has uh, a tremendous influence over what mortgage rates are, what auto loans are, what corporate borrowing costs are, and so forth. And so, you know, you need to convince uh, the market 
that your policy is going to be a certain way two years from now, three years from now, five years from now. It's not enough just to convince the market of what your policy is going to be tomorrow or in three months. So when you have uh, sort of all these different narratives spinning uh, out there, uh, you know, at uh, uh, on these financial television shows uh, or at these speeches that these Fed governors love to give at universities and at their local economic clubs, it becomes problematic. It becomes dissonance. Uh, people lose the lose track of the narrative, and they no longer. Uh, have a feeling of what the Fed is thinking in terms of where we're going to be three years down the road. Is there a risk of too much transparency? Is that even such a thing? I think that there is a risk of too much uh, cacophony. You know, yeah. you know, like we we think about even how democracy works in in our Congress, right? There are lots of different voices, but you want. The, the parties to have a coordinated strategy. And I think it's essentially the same at the Fed. Uh, transparency in and of itself is certainly a virtue in a democratic society. I, I think in the long in the long run, monetary policy has definitely benefited from this. You want accountability in an organization as powerful as the Fed, uh, but you also want coherence because uh, transparency and messaging is not just about accountability. It is about it is about financial conditions at the end of the day as well. And having dissension within the Fed or watching these um, disagreements bubble to the surface, have we seen that before historically? Is this unusual? Well, I I, I think uh, the circumstances are unusual in the era of the modern transparent Fed because it's so uh-huh. it's important to remember that this is such a new uh, such a new phenomenon in the United States, right? Uh, Alan Greenspan uh, famously said, uh, you know, since I've become a central banker, I have learned to mumble with with uh, great incoherence, right? Uh, in the olden days. Uh, opacity was kind of part of the model. And it wasn't really until we saw Bernanke come in in 2006 uh, that he really brought the values of of transparency to the Fed. And uh, of course, he used messaging and transparency as a major tool during the great financial crisis. But we haven't lived through an environment quite like this uh, with uh, almost 1970s-like inflation in this modern transparency era. All right, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time with us. This was a really great discussion. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much, Amy. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Levin. And coming up, we'll take a look at concerns within the medical research sector after a judicial ruling on mifepristone. Could judicial review have a chilling effect on pharmaceutical research and development? You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Amy Morris, and you're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. A judge in Texas ruled Mifeprestone should be removed from the market. And while the Supreme Court briefly preserved the broad availability of the abortion pill, there are other issues to consider. Let's talk about it with Lisa Jarvis. Lisa is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry. And Lisa, you have a column on the Bloomberg Terminal And it looks at the different impacts of the Texas court decision, not just the impact on a woman who may be looking for this pill. That's right. I think while obviously a lot of people are concerned about the impact on abortion and on mifepristone access, because that now represents up to 50 percent of um, abortions in the U.S. right now, um, there could be much broader implications for the pharmaceutical industry. Inventing a new drug is a very expensive and timely process, and companies want certainty. And the way that the judge ruled in this Mifepristone case, it essentially undermines the FDA's authority. The judge essentially said, I have gone through the data myself, and I have decided that your ruling was incorrect, your decision on the this drug was incorrect, and I'm going to remove it from the market. That's unprecedented. It's making the drug industry very nervous. So we're not just talking about the impact of not having the drug or the impact of the drug being on the market as far as women are concerned, but also the effect on the innovation within the pharmaceutical sector. Let's talk about that specifically. How much does it cost and how long does it take? Typically, I know every drug is going to be different, but typically to bring just a new drug to market. Typically, it costs about one to two billion dollars on average to bring a new drug to market, and it takes 10 years. That's just the clinical component. Um, You know, that's not even counting the discovery stage when you're looking for the new drug. So, you know, companies are looking for certainty in that process that when they get to the end, to the finish line, that the FDA approves the drug and they can sell it everywhere in the U.S. So companies that make that investment, we're talking billions of dollars. And when they make that investment, they assume that their drug will then be available because they're going to want to return on that investment, right? Exactly. Right. So right now you get a drug approved and that's a, you know, national national approval. And we've seen in the past, um, in, in one example of a state that tried to challenge a drug approval in a state that was in Massachusetts and they tried to challenge the approval of an opioid drug that they didn't want to sell in their state and the courts pushed back on that because they said you know the FDA's authority preempts your state authority and so seeing you know that the FDA has generally had a lot of leeway um, in terms of their you know um, decision making and the authority given to them um, around their decisions. So could this have a chilling effect then on the development of new drugs? I mean is that where this could be going? I think that's really a concern, a valid concern. Um, You know, I think the first more immediate thing to worry about is drugs that are already approved because the way that this ruling was worded, it could be sort of a roadmap for how to take other drugs off of the market. We see a lot of areas of science right now politicized, um, HPV vaccines, PrEP, which is the medicine that you take to prevent uh, HIV, COVID vaccines, birth control, there's sort of a short list you can imagine. And then when you sort of extend that out to innovation, you think about, well, a company is only going to invest the money to invent a new drug if they think they can sell it. So you can imagine that immediately these areas that already are kind of being politicized might be 
places they wouldn't want to put their R&D dollars. And then if this roadmap is very broad, you know, there could be anyone who decides to challenge anything. I I think people aren't assuming that everything is, you know, up for grabs and there's no reason. But at the same time, I I do think there's plenty of areas that could legitimately legitimately be, you know, uh, harmed. Well, I, I want to talk about that, too. Um, the stifling of innovation, judicial review and questioning of other drugs that already exist. You mentioned yourself how science is already becoming a polarizing, politicized thing. Science. And certain drugs, clearly, we all lived through COVID and should we vax, should we not? We've all seen that uh, already be politicized. Can you politicize just about any drug out there? I mean, it seems possible. You know, I I think we heard from HHS Secretary, um, you know, Javier Becerra mentioned a few drugs that he thought could be at risk. Um, One of those was Alzheimer's drugs because their their approval was controversial and they're very expensive. So, you know, one could pull any number of, you know, reasons to challenge the approval of a drug if you're the right person and you pick the right judge. I think that's the key here is that, you know, you would have to pick the right judge who has decided that they can undermine the FDA's authority. Okay, well, let's talk about that for a minute. The undermining of the authority of the FDA. Was this an undermining of their authority? Is their reputation somehow damaged by this? Well, I would say that the reputation is not necessarily damaged unless you're someone who probably walked in not respecting the FDA's authority. If if you already had that leaning. Exactly. But I do think that it undermines their authority significantly if it if it stands, because, you know, we typically consider the agency to have a lot of discretion and their authority over the safety and efficacy of our drugs. There's good reason for that. You know, there was a time where we didn't have an FDA. You know, we weren't assured as consumers that the drugs we were taking were safe and that they worked. Um, you know, we look to the agency for that. I'm happy that when I, you know, take a prescription, I know that um, someone has made sure that I'm not going to die from it or have side effects and that it's going to help me. Um, And so I think, you know, the broadness of this decision and this idea that the FDA had reviewed the data and that a judge could look at just components of the data, not even the full data set and say, well, I know better. That's alarming. I think that would put a chilling effect, not just on the innovation that we talked about, but also on what the FDA decides to do. Like it might I don't want to say paralyze them, but it might definitely slow down the process, which is not a fast process to begin with. Do you follow me? No, no. In fact, one of the things that's been pointed out that we haven't talked about is the FDA does have authority to withdraw a drug from the market. And that's a very slow process. It's been criticized for how slow it is. But it, there are, you know, really avenues in place to take a drug off the market if it truly is not safe or effective. And this judge has sort of come in to say, like, well, I've decided this, you know, we're not going to go through this process that FDA would normally go through where it's very public, transparent. People have an opportunity to weigh in on the importance of the drug in the marketplace. Patients can weigh in. Instead, you know, this is what's happening. So I, I do feel like it has a chilling effect and it does, you know, sort of as a consumer, I worry about what that means, you know, for people's attitudes about the safety of their drugs. I would think as a consumer, as um, a stockholder, uh, oh, yeah. members of you know people who work in big pharma, um, independent medical research, all of those would be impacted by a judge stepping up and going, no, 
Oh, oh, definitely. And we are finally starting to see pharma come off the sidelines. I mean, it's taken a while. Obviously, when Roe was overturned last summer, um, you know, there were concerns from the outset about some of these lawsuits that could emerge to challenge the status of mifepristone. Um, and they did finally file a group of companies and bio, which is one of the industry, you know, sort of lobbying organizations filed an amicus brief mm -hmm. last week. Um, pointing out all of these things that this is really um, undermining uh, the authority and, you know, expertise, scientific expertise that we all rely on as consumers, as investors, as inventors. Lisa Jarvis is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry. Now, stay with us. Coming up, we're going to take a look at the softening labor market. Will that make it easier for you to hire new employees? It turns out there are more complications you'll have to consider. And don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This is Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Executives have been looking forward to a softening labor market when Labor Secretary Gina Raimondo delivered the news. This is an excellent jobs report. You're seeing record low black unemployment you're seeing record low unemployment among people who have been left behind. And the best news for me is higher percentage of people working in the workforce. And while executives have been waiting for some relief, they might be in for an unwelcome surprise. Now, you might think it would be easier to hire people, but not necessarily. In a survey released April 4th by the conference board, 57% of chief executives said they were having problems attracting qualified workers. And while that number has declined from the final quarter of 2022, it still means there are more than half of companies are finding it hard to hire. So why is this so hard? We turn to Bloomberg Opinion editor Sarah Green Carmichael for some insight. Now, Sarah, we usually see fingers of blame pointed at the economy or the workers themselves for creating a tight job market. What else is going on here? Yes, I think that companies actually need to look a little bit at themselves in the mirror. Um, bad hiring practices are also contributing to the problem. Uh, it, part of it is that companies are potentially doing too much outside hiring right now rather than promoting from within. And compounding the problem and really the heart of the problem is that job interviews, hiring processes, vetting processes just take too long and are too involved. So it's hard to hire because companies have made it hard to hire. Yeah, you say in your piece that uh, companies just simply don't hire well. Is that what you mean, that they just take too long and they give you too many hoops of fire to jump through? Yeah, I'll give you an example of, of something that I think companies get wrong right at the start with the job description. Um, it's natural if you're bringing someone on board to start out with a wish list of 42 different attributes of what you want in a candidate. But that's not realistic to find in one person. You know, nonetheless, companies will often insist that no, someone has to be able to hit the ground running and do the job on day one, and they really need all these qualifications. But they actually don't have the budget to pay for someone with all of those qualifications. So qualified candidates are 
turning them down or not applying for that job. They're looking for other jobs. So right from the outset, companies have sort of hamstrung their effort to hire people. And then they make it worse by having people, you know, interview with dozens of internal, um, you know, people, not just HR or the hiring manager, but colleagues. It's a sort of 360 process that could drag on for months. Or they ask people to complete sample projects that not only are difficult for candidates to complete, but also take a huge amount of time for the hiring manager to review. So by sort of loading up the process at every phase of the way, um, they really are making it incredibly burdensome to apply for a job, but also for them to vet the people who've applied for the job. But you do still want strict vetting, right? You do want the best person for the job. You don't just want to grab the first guy who walks through the door. You don't want to grab the first person who walks through the door, unless that person's really good, in which case your work is done. Um, (laughs) But I, I think that sometimes companies get a little bit out over their ski tips with this phrase, the best person for the job. Most companies are not actually rank ordering the millions of people on the planet and finding the one best person for the job. You know, they're looking through their networks. They're hoping someone will apply. They're hiring recruiters to help them. It's a bit random. And they're looking for someone who can do the job and do it well at the price they can afford to pay. The very best person for the job probably will have a better offer that pays more. So, you know, it's a little bit of of a judgment call. It's a little bit of of a dance they have to do to say, you know, here's what we can afford and here's the the kind of person we'd like to hire. Um, And I think that more companies should probably be a bit more realistic about what are the core skills this job really needs? And what can we actually teach someone that they could learn in the first two, three, six months on the job that would actually then make them great once we onboard them properly? Let's look at another angle that you mentioned in your column. I Just full disclosure, I'm a Gen Xer, and I remember right out of college in the 90s, uh, we had the whole, you're lucky to be here attitude. We got that a lot. It was really prevalent. Is that still the message that companies send? Have they gotten away from that? I think that, you know, there are definitely times when companies have realized that the you're lucky to be here is not a strong selling point. Mm. Um, I think the last couple of years, companies really did take maybe a more, we're lucky to have you approach when the labor market was really tight. But I think companies have gotten a little fed up with that. And I do sense that this sort of, you're lucky to work at our wonderful company is still very much the the dominant attitude. So I I think that it's something where, um, you know, I'm glad that I guess executives feel so good about their companies, like morale is high, morale is good. That's great. But um, it's a little bit, I think maybe of a sense, I think there needs to be maybe a bit more realism that talented people always have options. And what you're really looking for is a match where like, yes, someone feels lucky to have that job, but also you should feel lucky to have them. You really want it to to be felt on both sides. So Sarah, you also suggest that executives should look at the application process from the prospective employee's point of view. How would they do that? Yeah, so there was a great example of this recently where the CEO and other top executives at Uber had decided that actually it was too difficult to bring on new drivers. So they actually started driving for Uber themselves to find out what some of the pain points were. Um, Probably most CEOs cannot go through their own hiring process, but there are other ways to kind of get that information. So you might interview candidates who've dropped out of the process or withdrawn. Um, You could keep some data 
for example, on how many people start the process but don't finish or how many offers you've made that have been declined. How long has the job been open? You know, if you've had a job open for six months, you really might need to rethink it. So there are other ways short of going through the process yourself that you could put yourself in candidate shoes. And can I just add, as part of the application process, when you as a company decide to go a different direction and not hire someone who has jumped through all the hoops, do them the courtesy of letting them know. I happen to know that a lot of times they just ghost them. That's not cool. A hundred percent agree with you. Um, One of the things that I found very frustrating over the last few months is I keep seeing headlines in different newspapers and, and websites about applicants who ghost the employer, don't show up for the job or don't show up for the interview. But the stories that I hear from people in my network are much more the reverse. You know, someone who's taken the time to go through the application process, do a bunch of interviews, and then they just don't hear back. I mean, that sends a terrible message about about your company and what you value. And hopefully, if you don't hire someone, you still would want them potentially as a customer or a client or maybe a future hire. So it's really important to, to put your best foot forward. Right, to keep those relationships strong. So, Sarah, let me ask you, how are you going to turn this ship around? Well, not you specifically, but how does the ship turn around? Because you were talking about an enormous part of the economy, Right people who hire. I mean, that's everybody. And you've got to sort of get the message to them that maybe they need to look at their hiring practices. How do you do that? Yeah, I think one is keeping that data on how the process is going, how long it's taking, and and also looking at what happens after you've hired someone. Was the Herculean effort worth it? Did the person you hire do well in the job? So, so one is just paying attention to that data. I think another... Um, One is doing that gut check at the beginning of what does this job really entail? Let's be realistic. Um, Another is is maybe expecting to do some hiring when you hire, sorry, expecting to do some onboarding and training when you hire someone from outside. But I do think that one way companies could make this much easier on themselves is if they put more effort into hiring and promoting from within. One of the experts I talked to for this column, uh, Peter Capelli, who's a professor at the Wharton School, said that, you know, decades ago, most companies were hiring 5 to 10% of people from outside the organization. And that was mostly entry-level jobs. So they got very good at saying, okay, this is what we need in an entry-level candidate. Now it's 80%. 80% of jobs are being filled from outside the organization. So it's a, it's a huge burden on HR departments. It's a huge burden on hiring managers. And you end up hiring people who do take a long time to settle into their new roles. You know, most of us learn... Um, when we stay with a company and advance in that company, the transferable skills, like they're transferable, but you, you, there's always a longer on-ramp period than you think when you switch companies. So I think hiring more people internally and then paying a little bit more attention to the process and then having the whole process take less time will just make companies um, suffer less as they try to hire people. That's really great advice, Sarah. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Absurdly cheap short-haul flights in Europe are coming to an end. And if you had hoped to save some money on the cost of a last-minute quick getaway, that's not happening. We'll look at this new reality for flights with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lara Williams. Lara also covers climate change for Bloomberg, and she joins us now. Lara, first of all, thank you for taking the time with us. Tell us about how the cost of a quick getaway just got so much more expensive. 
flights this summer um, all over the world have become more expensive. So from if you're looking at flights from the UK, where I live, to Europe, where I often like to go, uh, they're about a third higher than they were last summer. And that's due to a combination of, I think, high demand, because everyone's going back to traveling after you know several years of pandemic, and also the rising cost of aviation fuel. How is climate change impacting this? That's part of your wheelhouse. You can find the connection between these two. This is a long-term trend, unfortunately. Specifically, the re- the ways that we're trying to mitigate climate change, which obviously really important, it's vital. Um, it's going to mean that we're going to have higher flight prices going forward. That's because of two reasons. So the number one is that climate compliance rules are changing. So aviation in the EU, UK and Switzerland, they're subject to emissions trading scheme. So that means that airlines have to pay for every ton of carbon dioxide emitted on flights within the European area. Um, At the moment, half of those allowances are given for free. But as of 2026, airlines are going to be liable for 100% of those emissions. So that means their carbon costs are going to double. And then even beyond that, so by 2050, European airlines have pledged to try and reach net zero. And so that's going to happen through research and development. They're going to switch to sustainable aviation fuel. They're going to have to make some investments in improving operational efficiency, um, things like that. And a new report has put the cost of that at 820 billion euros on top of what they'll already have to pay for, which is huge. So for those two reasons, aviation is going to get really expensive. Now, we're specifically talking about the European Union here. Is this happening anywhere else or do you anticipate ripple effects throughout the system? For now, it's just airlines in the EU and the UK that have sort of like raised the alarm, like waving the flag. But I'd expect similar pressures to be put on airlines all over the world because everyone's going to have to make the switch to, you know, climate compliance and not polluting. You had mentioned earlier in the interview about how so many people are looking to to book airlines and and to get uh, those quick getaways booked in. But it seems like if so many more people are doing this, then, then, then maybe the airlines could sort of absorb some of this cost because they have so many people who are looking to fly, but it's not working out that way. Unfortunately not. So at the moment, the profit margins are really, really low. Mm. It's a really competitive industry. Um, So they've had to keep their ticket prices low. I think as one analyst said, if airlines could charge more for tickets, they would already be doing that. And when you look at the carbon, the changes in the carbon market alone, that is going to reduce earnings by about 77% across um, Europe's six largest point-to-point airlines. Um, So you can imagine what that looks like for the whole, for every airline, you know, it's going to reduce operate like profit margins by a lot. Um, And then, then you add in all the other extra investments that they're going to have to make. And the only option is to raise ticket prices. And perhaps fewer flights. Yeah, exactly. So, they might not even have a choice because any increase in ticket prices is going to result in some demand destruction. You know, people are already stretched trying to pay for food and heating their homes. So, you know, when a holiday becomes that much more expensive, 
that's going to be like one of the first things to do, I think. Laura Williams is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. She covers climate change, and that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Malo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines coming up. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.